Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who show for the month of June 2019. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And thank you for joining us in our episode we're calling Living in the Shadows. Rob, how are you? Very well, Dave. I'm surprised I haven't caught a cold or flu because we're into winter now and it's all very horrible outside. But, um, you know, thank heavens for small mercies. Uh, yes, look, I've got a little bit of a sniffle, but nothing too bad, considering we've had the coldest weekend in Melbourne we've had for quite a while this past weekend. I'm not doing too bad. But before we go any further, Rob, you you know that I'm not overly sentimental. I tend not to get too worked up about the passing of celebrities. That's true. But when your favourite character from your favourite TV show that really was a big part of your teenage years passes away... That was a moment that really made me uh, pause and feel quite sad. I am, of course, talking about the passing of Paul Darrow. Yes, yes. When when I saw this news, my, my first thought was, of course, oh, gosh, isn't that terrible? My second thought was, oh, I wonder what Dave's going to think about this. <laughs> because I, I, I know you, you are so such a fan of Paul Darrow and his work. And I think anyone who watches Blake 7 is, frankly. You know, he's just so good. Look, he is like... Tom Baker's Doctor for Doctor Who, even if he's not your favourite, you know, I know no one who says he's not their worst, you know, everybody has him in the top somewhere. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, gosh, what what a loss, but what a life, hey? Well, the guy made it to 78, and he lived life absolutely to the full, I mean, you know, he, he drank, he smoked, he had a lot of fun, he had a career that he loved, he he embraced his character. And, and that, that's just one final point I just want to make, is because you know, this isn't a Blake 7 podcast, and there will be a, a longer tribute on the next episode of Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast that Richard mm-hmm. and I do. But so many of the actors that we know, whether it's Who or Trek or whatever, but even Blake 7, are a little bit embarrassed about what they've done in cheap TV sci-fi, whereas Paul Darrow, right from the get-go, he always embraced it. He had time for fans. He had time for fan projects. Uh, he really was sort of everything you want in a leading man in that sort of a show. And, of course, he was in Doctor Who twice. And let's face it in time, like he's by far the best thing in it. <laughs> and speaking of, I mean, he doesn't take himself too seriously in that. I think it's the commentary track where, you know, he, he's overacting. He's doing the whole Richard Third routine and all of that. And Colin Baker says on the commentary, uh, is, is this acting going to come back into fashion, Paul? And... <laughs> He just laughs. He thinks that's a marvellous comment. You know, just what a, what a great guy. What a wonderful man. Uh, yes. So, uh, look, yeah, tributes and uh, praise to Paul Darrow. Absolutely. I'm glad we, we did that at the top of the show. Have you thought of another plan? Yes, I'm going to get some sleep. How can you sleep with all this happening? With all what happening? Blake is sitting up in a tree. Travis is sitting up in another tree. Unless they're planning to throw nuts at one another, I don't see much of a fight developing before it gets light. You're never involved, are you, Avon? You ever cared for anyone? Except yourself. I have never understood why it should be necessary to become irrational in order to prove that you care. Or indeed, why it should be necessary to prove it at all. Rob, you've got some podcast reviews for us. I do. That's something else we've been doing at the top of the show just lately. If you uh, leave us a iTunes review, which we'd love you to do, we'll read you out here on the show. So let's rattle through three quick ones from the past month. One is from Fledney from Australia. Discovered this podcast in a backwards way, from goodies to Blake 7 to Doctor Who. 
Oh, looks like I've got you to thank there, Dave, for two of those <laughs> podcasts. Um, so although this was, I think, the original, I was led backwards. The discussions are always amusing and don't take you down the path you would necessarily expect. Reviews are balanced and the details are pretty tight. A great listen. Oh, thank you for that review. That's very kind of you. It has been very heartening and, and really quite humbling in the last couple of months there have been a number of people who've tweeted either the podcast or myself personally and, and said that having found one of the podcasts that I do, they've gone on to find other ones. So they've either, as, as this gentleman has gone from Goodies to Blake 7 to Who, or they've started with the Doctor Who show and gone and found the Goodies Pirate podcast. And it's actually, you know, really, really, it just feels really good when people discover more of your work and, and enjoy it. It is. And I also like when people notice that our reviews are balanced because that's something I'm increasingly seeing. I mean, we have our favorite podcasts, and I think they're all pretty good, Dave, but there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I listen to various ones from time to time. I just try ones, like trying a a different kind of cake or something, you know, from time to time, and I think, gosh, some of these are so one-sided, either, oh, we're just going to hate everything about the show, or, oh, everything's wonderful, or, you know, and I think, gosh, we we maybe are a little different insofar as we're balanced. I don't know. You know, people say it to us fairly regularly now, so I'm starting to think uh, we might be a bit different. Um, look, I certainly don't think we're Robinson Crusoe. There's many good ones out there, but mm. yes, I think fandom, like the world generally, is becoming more polarised. Yeah, I think that's it. Anyway, I'll rattle on. This next one is called Special Effects. It's from the doc 184238 from the United Kingdom. He says, hi guys, it's a pleasure listening to your podcast. It's always upbeat and never hints at the popular trait on the internet of hating. Keep it up, lads. I have to say, I knew the invasion of time was going to be showing up here. I love the story, but like Rob, I just don't get the TARDIS. And there's a reference to our special effects episode, Dave, where I didn't like the TARDIS in Invasion of Time where they filmed in the hospital. Uh, No, I uh, was a little bit more generous in my views of that one, but clearly that review is on your side, Rob. Indeed. This one is called Great Balanced Fan Discussion of Doctor Who. It's from Steed Stylin, who I believe might be Stephen from the New to Who podcast, Dave. Uh, (laughs) He says, It's great to listen in on Rob and Dave's conversations. It's obvious they are such great friends, and they are usually, usually really fair in their views and reviews, even if you don't always agree with them. Smiley face. (laughs) Well, if that is you, Steve, thank you very much for that. If it's not, thank you as well. Indeed. Shall we move on to the news, Dave? So, yes, we shall move on to the news, Rob. Now, we could almost have our own little subheading here, which is news Blu-ray related, because every (laughs) month there seems to be some new Doctor Who Blu-ray box set news. And on this occasion, it is that having not even got season 10 out yet, we are getting season 23. Indeed, which seems to leapfrog ahead of other seasons we've been thinking about or even been told about, such as a Sylvester McCoy one that's coming. Yeah, so we believe season 26 is on the way and could well be the next one. But no, after season 10 will be season 23, so Trial of a Time Lord. What interests me about this news, Rob, is that when you have a look, they have really packed on the extra material, the special material. There is going to be, I believe, an entire extra disc or more Mm. of material that wasn't on the DVD set, which I must admit, you know, there, there is stuff in Trial I like. I've, I really enjoy Mysterious Planet. I've really enjoyed Terror of the Vervoids. I really struggle with Mind Warp. Mm. And Ultimate Foe is a bit of a mess. But when you see how much value-added material there is, and, you know, these are people who are alive and willing to talk and tell a great story. you Colin Bakers, your Nicola Bryant, Eric Saywoods, all those sort of people. That That is 
I suspect, really going to be the selling point of this box set. Yeah, and look, the DVD box set was no slouch in itself. It had some really, really good features on each of the discs. Uh, yes. From time to time, I would pull out the Season 23 DVD set and watch the extras because it was such an interesting thing because it was talking about this season that had such trouble, you know, in in its creation and uh, right down to Robert Holmes dying when he's trying to finish the final script and all of that stuff. Yeah, Eric Saywood is on there being incredibly honest about his views, including down to what he thought of Colin as an actor and you get Colin's very honest response to that criticism and it's it feels like... Um, along with the Davison documentaries, the most honest mm. and the most, therefore, insightful of the doco. So, look, although I'm not a huge fan of Trial of the Time Lord, I'm actually quite looking forward to this disc for other reasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite fond of the extras as they were, and if they've added to that comprehensively, that's just amazing. I mean, I've seen the little trailer where they've got Colin Baker in a real-life court. Have you seen this? And he's, he's acting like the Doctor standing in the dock. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I'm not sure that quite worked for me, but it's, if it's a sign of the extra effort they've put in and how involved Colin has been in this, then that is a good sign. Mm, I thought it was quite fun anyway. <laughs> Moving on, Dave. Uh, Freema Adjaman, uh, Martha Jones, of course, has talked about, you know, companions are often asked, would you go back to Doctor Who? And it seems she's been asked that question, but come up with a slightly different answer this time around because she has hinted that... Without saying, oh, yes, I'd like to go back to the TV show like all the past companions seem to say, she's saying Big Finish are brilliant and the stuff they do really fills the timeline gaps. I've been asked by them a couple of times, but timing-wise it hasn't worked out. I think there might be something coming up, but I can't say what. So it looks like there could be a Tennant and Martha Big Finish set coming in the, well, who knows, in the near future or semi-near future. That would be very cool and that would be a good way to add to Big Finish's canon. What I think we're finding more and more with Big Finish is this capacity to say to an actor, well, look, we don't expect you to interrupt your career and other work to do this, but if you find you've got a one-week window somewhere and we can get you into a recording booth, we will do your bits. Mm. And it may be that we don't do everybody else's bits for many months afterwards, but, but if we can get you for a week, we'll do your bits and you can join the family. Yeah, that's right. And it's not like Freeman needs the work. She's been in some really good TV shows since she left Doctor Who. But yes. I think she just enjoyed her time in Doctor Who and maybe to, to see David again if he's in the studio at the same time is probably going to be quite a quite a fun thing for her. It will be. And continuing with the Big Finish news, I was a little amazed to realise that they are coming up to their 20th anniversary. Yeah, it's incredible. Before the series, before New Who came back, Big Finish had been doing it for four or five years at that point in time. Yeah, they, they really were. Because I remember they started really as I was sort of coming to the end of my first big stint in fandom at the end of the 90s when Virgin Books had wrapped up and I was at university now and sort of you know, had a bit less time for these sort of things. But and I never really got on board. But, I mean, in true Big Finish style, they are going hard. At their anniversary, they are going to do specials, they're going to do live streams, they're going to do something special for most of their different lines and categories, and they're going to all end up with Doctor Who, The Legacy of Time, which of course, in classic Doctor Who tradition, is going to be a multi-Doctor crossover special, which will be released in July to celebrate the 20th anniversary. Yeah, it's a, it's really good stuff. And I mean, I, I jump in and make fun of Big Finish at times with the best of them because, you know, Big Finish does seem to, <laughs> to take some really, 
you know, stuff that's right out there on the fringes and make whole box sets out of it. But at the same time, they do do some good stuff. They have such an output that I don't think someone with a moderate income even can even afford it all. Uh, and will certainly never listen to it all. But I think in the fullness of time, people will look back on Big Finish and there might be, you know, reference books written about this kind of stuff. And there will be a lot of good stuff to dig into for people for decades to come. Because, you know, I think they are telling some good stories at times. Audio never goes out of fashion. And it's amazing that they've been able to get past Doctors so many times to come back and record these stories. Sylvester alone, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of new Sylvester stories on Big Finish. Yeah, they've got a lot of stuff out there. I, I'm like you, Rob. I've only ever really dipped into the range. Uh, the occasional selected story from the main range and occasionally some of the specials they've done or some of the tangents they've done. But... There's something for everyone, I guess, in, in Big Finish. And, uh, you know, I have enjoyed some of what they've done. Not all of it. Some of it was pretty pretty dicey. But mm. the, the one criticism I've had, and I've said this before, is when you do enjoy a couple of Big Finish stories and then you go to the webpage and think, oh, what might I get next? And you just see sort of 400 entries into that category and you go, well, I, I don't know. That, no, sorry, too hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know it's hard. Even when you hone down on one doctor, like the eighth doctor, it's like, oh well, there there were the monthly eight doctors, and then there were the eighth doctor adventures, and now we've got eighth doctor box sets, and it's like, oh Christ, how does this all fit together? I don't know. Yeah, I listened to a couple of the companion chronicles not that long ago, and I thought, oh, these aren't too bad. I might listen to a couple more, and I just looked at dozens and dozens and dozens. I thought, I I, I don't know which to pick next. I am um, too much. Nope. Sorry. Yeah. But um, I, I do dip in from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on uh, quickly. A few months ago on the show, I talked about Trust Me, which was a Jodie Whittaker vehicle uh, where she was playing someone masquerading as a doctor in a hospital. Yes. And I said, look, they they wanted to make a second series and Jodie had become Doctor Who and they realised they couldn't get her so they were going to take it in a new direction and have someone else pretending to be a doctor in a different hospital or, or something along those lines. Anyway, that has now aired in the UK and apparently it bombed big time without Jodie in the uh, lead role or maybe just the story was terrible, who knows, and it's been axed. So <laughs> officially Jodie leaving that show has got it axed. Well, that's a shame, but it is very hard when a series hinges on one particular actor to do it without them and i think that was just inevitable especially after only one series too all right and that wraps up the news dave shall we move on to our mini topics look a couple of things i just wanted to mention very briefly one is that as i've sort of been getting back into trying to feel human again after the australian federal election <laughs> I've, I've been sort of getting back into being able to watch television a bit more and i finally got around to watching series four of new doctor who and it's been interesting because i've come away from that not really changing my views on any stories i've still enjoyed a lot of them but perhaps enjoying them in different ways or where i've disliked them it disliked them in different ways but overall i've actually found this a much stronger season than i remember it, it starts off with the usual sort of, you know, run around, which doesn't really do much for me. But Planet of the Ood, I just thought actually was really powerful, far better than I remembered it, especially with Tim McInerney's performance. I got a lot out of the Sontaran Stratagem and the Poison Skies. And, and these these were two really where aspects of them that had annoyed me when I first saw them no longer did. But mm. aspects 
that I hadn't noticed before did bug me a little bit. And look, these are imperfect episodes, but there's a lot of fun. I enjoy the Doctor's Daughter, always have. Uh, I enjoy the Unicorn and the Wasp, always have. Um, I still think Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead is the weak point of the season. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I'm in an ultra minority on that. But then as I got to the tail end, I sort of realised this back end of the season perhaps is as good a run of episodes as we've had in the new series. Midnight, Turn Left, Stolen Earth, Journey's End. I was absolutely gripped by all of them, uh, even more so than I was on the first viewing. And this really does bring what should have been, in my view, the end of the Tenant Era to an incredibly strong finale. It's just a shame that there was those specials that came afterwards that didn't really work. But yeah, for a series I've not watched in a long time, I, I got a lot out of series four, I'm quite pleased to say. Yeah, I'm quite fond of that series. Uh, when I compare it to more recent series, I think, what's gone wrong with Doctor Who? Honestly, you know, it, it seems such a different show. Uh, and it's not that long ago. There is no doubt that by this stage, Russell T. Davis really knows what he's doing. And he's doing it very well. And I suspect when I watched it the first time, there was a little bit of sameness and formula to it in that, okay, this is the two-parter at the start of the season where we introduce the old monster. This is the later two-parter. This is the Dr. Light story. This is the, like, you can sort of see Russell structuring it in a very familiar and almost repetitive way. But divorced from that, just watched on its own, I, I thought it worked and stood alone very, very well. Yeah, look, no, no complaints from me on this. I, I think it's fantastic myself. I, I particularly like Turn Left as an episode. And let me ask you a question without notice. What do you think of the way they portray Unit in those, uh, say, the Sontaran stories? They're not sort of the cuddly, friendly Unit we're used to from the, from the olden days. I think that it is a criticism of the whole of New Doctor Who that there are not people there who actually have served in the military in the way that Douglas Camfield... Well, sorry, Douglas Canford was a student of the military, but Terence Dix and John Pertwee and uh, Barry Letts and many, mm. many others who worked on the production in the 70s had served in the military in one way or another or, or knew people who did or, or were close to. That insight into what the military is, and I say this as someone who himself has served in uniform, I think is very lacking in New Doctor Who, mm. and that trend starts very much in the Sontaranics not the Sontaran experiment, the Sontaran <laughs> stratagem, uh, and, and, and gets worse as it goes on under Moffat. And that, that I think, is a real shame. Um, there just isn't that real understanding of the military. And he, here there, there, there isn't that almost nastiness in the way that Moffat portrays them, but there is a very large dose of um, foolishness and naivety, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That that was the first thing I noticed when I saw those episodes back in the day. And it hasn't got any better for me on repeated viewings. Mm, no, I, I think it is lacking. I think it's an experience gap mm. in the production team. Yeah, many topics for me this month, Dave, Doctor Who related. I've been doing all sorts of things. I bought all of the Colin Baker Missing Adventures, the Virgin Missing Adventures. Wow. Yeah, I just thought, you know what, I don't own these and I think I'd like to. Uh <laughs> That's a real mixed bag, that group. It is. The first one I want to read, though, is one that you uh, like very much, which is the Cyberman one. Uh, yes, please, please do. And I look forward to hearing what you think of it. 
Yeah, yeah. So I picked those up. Uh, quick thing I noticed too: the Telos novellas. I had bought a lot of these back in the day. They're those little hardcover books that Telos were putting out, uh, and their novellas, obviously. Oh, uh, I never had the Peter Davison one though, which was a Civil War one with Perry. And I'd been looking and looking online, and I was finding them for a hundred bucks, a hundred and twenty bucks, like crazy prices, because these were fairly limited in number. And there were sort of limited edition versions as well as regular versions of the Telos novellas. And I, I, I just wasn't finding them for a good price. And then I found the uh, Australian Doctor Who fan club is selling them for about $60 a pop, which is still pretty expensive. However, it's a lot cheaper than uh, I was finding them elsewhere. So I picked up the, uh, the Davo story. Oh, very nice. Have you had a chance to go through it yet? Not yet. Not yet. Like many books I buy, I think I need that. I want that. I will read it one day. And I put it on the shelf. And then, I, and then I don't read it for several years. But I eventually get to them. Well, when you do, let us know. I will do. And finally, I've been giving away a bunch of my old Doctor Who DVDs, which sounds like heresy, but they're the ones that I've replaced with Blu-rays. I had been putting the Blu-rays up on the shelf alongside the DVDs, and I thought, you know what, this is just taking up so much space. And so I've just started carving out chunks of my DVD collection and putting the Blu-rays in amongst the DVDs, and just giving them away to friends who are interested in the classic era. I thought, there's no use me having these on DVD as well, so I'm just giving them away. Uh, yes, I've started the process of taking them off the shelf, but I need to find a new home to send them to, and I will do that at some point. Mm. Uh, a final thing I just wanted to mention is another piece of merchandise that I've purchased, Yes, and that is another of Panini Comics Doctor Who... I guess you don't know if you call them graphic novels, but they are Doctor Who comic strip compilation books. You may remember, Rob, I got one last year for my birthday. You got a Dalek one, didn't you? I got Emperor of the Daleks, yes. That's it, yeah. And this year I've been given Evening's Empire. Oh, which okay. Which is some of the earlier uh, Sylvester McCoy ones, right from the very start of where I started being a regular purchaser of Doctor Who magazine. So Evening's Empire, The Grief, Memorial, Cat Litter, and a few others are in there. And look, I, I think we often talk about how people's favourite era of Doctor Who is the one where they first discovered it. I think even more so fans' favourite eras of Doctor Who magazine are the ones when they first start purchasing it, particularly at that sort of 10, 11, 12 age, which is when I did. And the cartoons, particularly from them, those McCoy cartoons, are something I'm very, very fond of. So having them in this lovely uh, printed, you know, heavy paper, glossy book mm. with extra articles about the writing and comments from the writers and the artists etc is just a really lovely piece of uh, merchandise to have and uh, i've now got two i suspect i'll get more as the years go on yeah i completely agree with your assessment on on dwim because i was picking up say aged 11 i was picking up a dwim with the colin baker strip in it and it was so beautifully drawn and some of the stories were just so imaginative and, and amazing. I have really warm fuzzies towards Colin Baker in comic strip form. Uh, amazingly warm fuzzies. More so than I do for Davo in comic strip form, for example. Yeah, and I know people of a generation older than us who first got those early Doctor Who weeklies with the Tom comic strips talk about them as being the best ever. And I, I think it really is about that era that you discover them. Yeah, without doubt, you're just pouring over every frame. And and, and I've got to say, that the, the artwork in these issues you're talking about, the Sylvester ones or the Colin ones I'm talking about, the artwork was amazing stuff. I mean, I was buying... 
Dwim until probably about a year ago, and the comics were very, very basic at times. You know, it's a modern sort of art style that the artists were doing. It's probably quicker to do, Um, and I get that, that it's a really quick turnaround and all that. But back in the day, the comics were drawn in such a beautiful, beautiful black and white way. I just used to love them, yeah. Well, there you go. I think we are in agreement. They're, they're, they're a wonderful thing for a lot of fans, I think. Absolutely. And I'm glad they've reprinted them because it is hard to, to get back issues of the magazine, particularly consecutive ones, to, to view a story. Y- yes, it is. And even if you've got PDFs, you've got to go and find the comic and all the rest of that. So, mm. yeah, they're, they're, they're lovely to have. And it's how you really should be reading them, in my view. Absolutely. So that's the little things we want to discuss, Rob. So we're now on to our major topic for the month, which we are calling Living in the Shadows. So this is an idea that we came up with where we said, what are those elements of Doctor Who, on screen, off screen, whatever it might be, that deserve a little bit of love, but perhaps don't get it because they're overshadowed by the big things. Something that does really, really well, but because it's not a podium finish... It doesn't get the attention. Yeah, that's right. And this, when this got put up as an idea, it just fascinated me because instantly I could think of some. And uh, I won't say any more because it might give away what I'm going to talk about. But yeah, I was just fascinated by this, Dave. Yeah, so look, lots of ideas and I went through and added some and culled some and all the rest of it. We've decided we're going to group these by decade for the most part, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, and then the new series. And I've got a few for each, so perhaps I'll kick us off with the 60s, Rob. Yeah, please, because I have nothing in the 60s. Oh, okay. Well, I've got the 60s all to myself, which is fine. (laughs) I'll just indulge myself here. Go for it. The first thing I've got is a story. And this is a story that I think is really fun, really good, but it is overlooked by its epic cousins. I think I've guessed what it is. So its epic cousins are stuff like the Daleks and the Dalek Invasion of Earth and the Daleks Master Plan. But in the middle of yes. that, you have The Chase. Yes! Very good. <laughs> and I think The Chase is a really overlooked little gem. Look, I agree. It's not the Daleks Master Plan and it's not the Dalek Invasion of Earth. It's 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 going for something a bit different. It's not as good as those. But, but falling third or fourth to, to those other 60s Dalek stories is not something to be ashamed of. William Hartnell is phenomenally good in this. He is dark when he needs to be dark. He is hilarious when he needs to be hilarious. Maureen O'Brien's having fun. It's a great finale for Ian and Barbara. It's got so much imagination. It's got that Terry Nation adventure. And I just I just think that look it hasn't even got Daleks in the title. Mm. That's how that's how much it's in the shadows. And so I <laughs> wanted to give a bit of love to the lesser Dalek story of the sixties, The Chase. Dave, when is this show going to get a renaissance? When when are fans going to turn around and go, you know what, actually this is really quite good because it's funny and it's light. And as I've said in past episodes of this podcast, it's doing something different all the time. They're going to different planets and doing different things. It's not like running up and down the same corridors for four or six or eight episodes or whatever. It's, It's really good stuff. I get why people think it's lighter compared to uh, those other Dalek stories that you mentioned, because 60s Dalek stories, let's face it, are all pretty bloody awesome. Yes. But but the chase, yes, when is it going to have a renaissance? The renaissance should start here, Dave, I think. I think it's going to be when the season two Blu-ray finally comes out, because I think the problem for the chase is not that people aren't willing to give it a go. It's a lot harder to just stumble across being a black and white story from the 60s. 
Uh, I think that when people have seen it, particularly when it was on Twitch back in the day, it's got a lot of love, but it just doesn't get seen very often. And as well, not having Dalek in the title, it's not a DVD that you necessarily pull off the shelf either. Mm, Exactly right. Now, Rob, for the 60s, 70s and 80s, I've got a similar question for each of you where I'm going to give you four stories and then ask why these are in the shadows. Not the stories themselves, but something that links them. Now, four stories from the 60s, Rob. Mm -hmm. The Myth Makers. Yeah. The Daleks Master Plan. Mm -hmm. The Massacre. Yeah. And The Ark. Okay. I would say they are four very strong stories. Very strong stories. Very different classics in their own way. And they're linked by the fact that they all have John Wiles as their producer, who I think of all the producers in Doctor Who is living in the shadows. He falls between Verity Lambert, who is that wonderful woman whose strength of purpose brought us Doctor Who that we all know and love. And on the other side, he's got Innes Lloyd, who's famous for getting the Troughton years going and the first regeneration and the monster season and mm. all of that. And in the middle, you've got this little John Wiles period where, look, bang for bang, those four stories, that has got to be a pretty impressive record for any producer. Oh, it's a fantastic record. And, and you're right, he is lost between two very well-known producers. So you can see why that, that happens. And I think some of my later examples in Living in the Shadows will be similar. Someone who's sandwiched between just two monoliths. And, you know, they can put out all the great work they want, but they're just not getting noticed. Not to mention, of course, with John Wiles, of his four stories as producer, two don't exist at all. Mm. And the Dalek's master plan is two-thirds missing as well. So he's only got one story that's fully extant in the archives now fortunately that's the arc which i think is a brilliant story but yeah th- this is a guy who i think just really gets lost but did a lot of good work and and at that point where doctor who really could have run out of steam and it had sort of three seasons verity had moved on all the original cast apart from hartnell had moved on it could very easily run out of steam he really kicked it into another gear and then in the slow took over from there so uh, John Wiles is another pick. And finally, I have to have a companion who lives in the shadows here, and that is Vicky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's not Susan. She's certainly not Ian and Barbara. She's not Jamie and some of the Tratton ones that come after her. But Maureen O'Brien is just, and I've said this before, such a good actress. And her relationship with William Hartnell and the interplay between the Doctor and Vicky is, is so marvellous. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on this one too much, but just say I think Vicky deserves a lot more love than she gets. I think so too. The reason she didn't make a list for me is because Stephen being my favourite male companion of the 60s, Vicky and Stephen go together like bread and butter. And so I I, I think quite fondly of, of Vicky myself. And I, I didn't want to put her on a list for that reason, but I see absolutely what you mean. So they're three living in the shadow picks for the 60s, Rob. Have you got some for the 70s and do you want to lead us off? I'll lead us off into the 70s, albeit the mid-70s, Dave. So we may be tic-tacking back and forth here. I'm going to throw up as a companion Harry Sullivan, played by Ian Marta. Snap. Snap, okay. <laughs> I'll lead off here. You might have similar thoughts. In fact, I'm sure you do. He was completely overshadowed by Tom and Liz and faded quickly into the background. And we all know why the character was there in the first place. You know, they thought the Doctor might be a frailer man and, oh, we need a man of action. And, you know, he, he, he was sort of surplus to requirements once Tom Baker came in and could do 
most stuff. Although I think of the modern era at times when I when I hear that story and I think, well, you know, we used to have Eccleston and Captain Jack and Eccleston was no slouch. He wasn't an old man. He could do his own stuff and Captain Jack was an augment to that. Captain Jack could do things the Doctor couldn't. And I think... You know, in a, in another world, maybe Ian Marta as as Harry Sullivan could have done things that the Tom Baker Doctor wouldn't do. Uh, so it, it's kind of a tricky thing. But yeah, Ian Marta for me, Dave. Yeah, when we talk about being sandwiched between great performances, well, Harry sort of has Sarah Jane Smith before him. He has Sarah Jane Smith after him, mm. and he's got Sarah Jane Smith to compete with, and and Tom Baker as well. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of you know, uh, for many people, the most popular and the greatest doctor and the most popular and the greatest companion, and you're playing third tier to them. It's no wonder that he gets lost sometimes, but I think a lot of people have said this as they've watched, particularly the season 12 Blu-ray that came out about a year ago. Ian Martin doesn't give a bad performance in any of those, and he gives some damn good ones as well. Mm. Terror of the Zygons, I think, is his best work right at the end, but again... He's got this wonderful dry wit. He's got a little bit of the uh, the slapstick when he needs to, but he can deliver a dramatic line. He can deliver real sincerity when he's really worried or stressed. And just, just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Oh, a wonderful character. That that old uh, British spirit that he, that he shows, it's something that's increasingly lost on television now, and I, I just love seeing it in, in something like Doctor Who. I'm glad we snapped on that one. I had a feeling we might, actually, so I'm very glad we did. Mm. That's my only one of the 70s, Dave. Oh, okay. Well, I've, I've got two more. I've got a story, and I'll, I'll just tell you what it is on this occasion. It's The Ambassadors of Death. Yeah, okay. Now, we all know that season seven is my favourite season, but in amongst Spearhead from Space, the Silurians, and Inferno, which are all, I think, undisputable classics, mm. you get The Ambassadors of Death, which in any other season would be a contender for the best in the season, I would say. This is such an epic adventure. It's got space travel, it's got spies, it's got betrayal, it's got aliens, it's got crazy generals, it's got some great unit stuff, it's got some great stuff for at least Shaw as she goes and um, actually drives part of the plot herself. It's got action. It's got so much good stuff in here, but I think it is a bit lost in, in a really, really great season. And I think that people should check out The Ambassadors of Death again. I, I, I can watch it regularly and find it just cracks along. It's really, really good. Yeah, i got to agree with you there. In fact, it's one of the stories I like most in, in that season. And I know it's a great season, but Ambassadors, I, I always found quite spooky, especially watching that first... Is it the first episode in black and white? Oh, well, they all went out in Australia in black and white. That, that's what I'm thinking of. And it just was so, you know... This, this spacecraft and what's inside, we don't know. You know, and the black and white vibe. Oh, wonderful, wonderful stuff for me as a kid. And still as an adult, great stuff. And not to mention the introduction of the theme tune Sting as well. The cliffhanger Sting. Yes. Yes, indeed. Wonderful. It is good. Uh, my other pick for the 70s, and I've put it in here because it's where it mostly fits. Now, Rob, another four stories I'm going to list for you. The Massacre. Mm-hmm. Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah. Pyramids of Mars. Yeah. The Horror of Fang Rock. Mm, okay. Would you say that's a fairly strong list? <laughs> Extraordinarily so. All directed by Paddy Russell. Right, okay. And Paddy Russell is one of two directors I have on this list as really living in the shadows. 
when we talk about directors in Doctor Who, we quite rightly talk about Douglas Camfield and Graham Harper and a couple of others, but there are a couple that I think are really, really good and just don't get the credit they deserve because they're not Camfield or Harper. And Paddy Russell, Massacre, Dinosaurs, Pyramids, Fang Rock. How good a record is that? I mean, in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, she takes a story, look, we, we always, I think we, every episode now we're almost coming back to the Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Rob, but, but to take that story and say, right, the dinosaurs don't quite work, let's make sure we make the human part of this really stand out. She does a great job, she gets great performances. Pyramids of Mars, that is scary, spooky, epic, chilling, really atmospheric, and again with great performances and great casting. The same in the horror of Fang Rock, and the massacre by all accounts as well looks sumptuous and is a wonderful character drama this is a really good director a really good actors director who also can make stories work make stories spooky patty russell i think deserves a lot more credit than she gets oh look undoubtedly they are some amazing stories and and her background is quite special too i mean she's one of the earliest uh female directors at the bbc full stop yes you know forget doctor who just in just in general she is like a trailblazer in the industry and did good work as well and i guess in those days you had to be doing good work to sort of break into the the industry like that a male-dominated industry yeah and and really able to stand up for yourself and legendarily she was one who really knew how to stand up to tom baker and there's that famous anecdote about the pyramids of mars where she said right you're going to get in the mummy costumes it's important that the the body language is clearly the doctors inside this thing and no, I'm not getting in that. You can't make me. And sorry, Tom, I'm the director, and you're getting in that costume. Yeah. Do it now. You know? <laughs> Whereas I think a lot of a lot of other male directors would have went, "All right, Tom's not going to do that. Well, what's our work around?" You know, she's like, "No, nope, this is what I'm doing." Mm, that's right. Yeah, look, a, a great choice there. And I'm wondering if we're going to get a snap when we get to '80s uh, directors. I've, I've got a funny feeling based on this one. Okay. Mm. Well, well, shall we test that one now then? If you like, if we're going to the 80s. We'll, we'll go to the 80s, so I'll, I'll give you another four stories, and this this will test if it's going to be a snap or not. Full Circle, yeah. Earthshock, yeah. Kinder, and Legopolis. No. No, okay, well, that is my director, and that is, of course, Peter Grimwade. Yes, very good choice. A- again, someone who, if he wasn't living under the, these other big directors, would, I think, get a lot of credit... And, I mean, Earthshock is amazingly well-directed, famously pissed off the actors doing it, and <laughs> I think, I think they, 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 some of them respect him to different degrees. You know, Peter Davison says, look, I hated working for him, but I totally got what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and, and other actors, you know, maybe were a little bit less forgiving, but he makes Earthshock crackle along there. I think it's correct to say there are as many cuts in that as there are in, like, a feature film movie. Yeah, I've heard that before, yeah. Uh, he makes kinder work. He makes Legopolis so dramatic. Full Circle looks so good. And he, of course, wrote Mordred Undead, which I'm very fond of, and Planet of Fire, which is my favourite Davison story. But Peter Grimwade is the other director that I had on my list of directors living in the shadows. So I'm curious, Rob, who's <laughs> yours? Well, you just mentioned Planet of Fire, so I'll work backwards and say Planet of Fire, Enlightenment, Snake Dance, and Castrovalva. Good call. Yeah, very good call. Fiona coming, everyone. Fiona coming. She's yeah. amazing. She really is, isn't she? Yeah. 
She is. And I mean, uh, before we get on to what she directed, she goes right back in who she was on the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. She was an assistant floor manager back then. She was cutting her teeth during the William Hartnell era. Um, and she also got a run on stuff like The Highlanders, Seeds of Death and The Mutants before she became a director. Uh, so she she was around who for a long time before she got Castrovalva and uh, as I say also got Snake Dance Enlightenment and Planet of Fire all Davos stories so I'm very across them and I think she kind of gets left behind a bit or in the shadows a bit because of the stories she was given to direct they were often the more interesting or imaginative stories they weren't Earthshock you know, and they weren't yeah. Resurrection of the Daleks, and you know they weren't stories like that. They were they were different stories. I mean, Enlightenment is a very very different Doctor Who story compared to a lot of what else was going on in that era, particularly with Sayward as the uh, as the script editor. I think Fiona Cummings' biggest strength is that ability to take a script and go right. How can I make this different? How can I make this special? Mm. How can I make this? really imaginative and and whether it's something like putting the men in different sorts of costumes whether it's the way that she filmed it the location work that she did the model work that she did some of the casting that she had really unusual and unexpected casting that really works she put a lot of thought into lifting a script up and i think that you're right that's a really good call Mm, yeah that stood out to me uh you know i mean she she is a well-known director it's not like she's um she's under a rock but just compared to the other directors of that era, I, I just think that it's probably the stories that hide her a little because she does extraordinary things in all of those stories. Yep, I would agree with that. Mm. So I'll give you another of my 80s picks, Robin. In some ways, this is perhaps the biggest pick I've got on my whole list. Ooh, wow. Because, because this is a doctor, and I'm going to say Peter Davison. Really? I think that when it comes to being sandwiched between Tom Baker, who is famous for being the most popular and biggest doctor there is, and Colin Baker, who is probably the most controversial and, again, very big in his performance as a doctor. Mm -hmm. In the middle, you've got Peter Davison, who is just getting on with the job so superbly, but I think for a long time has never really quite got the recognition that he deserves because he just was so uncontroversial. He did three pretty good seasons i've found over the years that the more i watch peter davison i realize just how hard he's working Hmm. in every scene that he does but he's in that beige costume against some beige sets (laughs) and and he's not tom baker and he's not colin baker he didn't get cancelled he didn't have mega popularity although he did lift the ratings quite a bit when he came on board Hmm. and I, I, i just think yeah he he's someone who does deserve a little bit more recognition because i think he does live in the shadows a bit yeah see it's hard for me to to see him that way because i am such a fan but when i put myself in your shoes or someone else's shoes i can see what you mean i can see what you mean very clearly actually and yeah and i do see it sometimes i see people comment on reddit or internet forums and they're like oh i've started getting into the peter davison episodes isn't he good like they're like they're very surprised (laughs) (laughs) yes yes. i'm like yes yes of course he's good where where have you been and then and that makes perfect sense through what you're saying that he is sandwiched between two doctors that do overshadowing for much for very different reasons Mm, yeah mm. yeah good call there another from you for the 80s okay a companion now it's nissa played by sarah sutton oh any snaps 
No, but but but, but I think I know what you're thinking. Keep keep, okay. keep going. I I I think, and and this isn't saying anything profound, but I think she's constantly overshadowed by Tegan. And when Adric's around, even by Adric as well, you know, she's the softer, lovelier person and she's quite often pushed to one side. And you see this happen all the time in real life. You see it happen at work. You see it happen in your friend groups, perhaps. The loud extrovert types take all the oxygen in the room. And it's the, <laughs> it's the lovely types who are often the introverts. They might have great things to say and uh, really interesting things to do but they never get a chance. They're always pushed to one side. And I think Nissa's very much in that mould playing out on the screen. She is like the introvert who doesn't get much of a go. Uh, and I think it's it's even Peter Davison's on the record, I believe, is saying he liked the Nissa character very much. And I think a Peter and Sarah combo, just the two of them, would have been a, a very traditional Doctor Who pairing and might have made for a more interesting era for some people. I know some people bitch and moan that oh, Peter's got Adric who just wants to go home and Tegan doesn't want to be there and, you know, this is pushed off to one side. I think if it had have just been Peter and, and Sarah, I think it could have been very traditional, very, very good Doctor Who. But uh, obviously it wasn't to be. It's interesting you make that last point because as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, yes, Nissa is very, very good. Sarah Sutton is a very good actress. When she's given stuff to do, she's very good, but that's rare. And I thought... What, what is her best story? What's a story where she does get a lot to do? And I was thinking it's the Ark of Infinity, which is the story where it is just Davo and Nyssa. Mm, exactly. Could you imagine that for a, for a whole season? I could. Mm. I think. It's, it's hard to be sure. Yeah. We, I mean, so much time's gone by and we're so familiar with all the stories now and and having Tegan around from the end of Tom's era right through to almost the end of Davo, she sort of overshadows everything. But yeah, I think it could have worked. And I think there have been, say, big Finnish stories that are just Davo and, and, and Nissa, and they work out pretty well too. So yeah, interesting. And what's also interesting is that you've gone down a very similar path to the one I did for my last pick from the 80s, because I've picked Turlo. Aha, uh-huh. Okay. And for exactly the same reasons. I think that the whole time he's there, he's overshadowed He's overshadowed by Janet Fielding. I think that when it comes to male companions, he's not Ian and he's not Jamie, who are sort of you know, the big ones. And, and even Adric, although I th- you know, I've got a very soft spot for Adric and I like a lot of what he does, I, I, I know that a lot of people don't. But because of that, Adric is very much in the forefront of people's minds. You you think of male companions and Adric does come to mind. Whereas Turlow, he's he's such an interesting companion. He's so well played by Mark Strickson. He gets on so well with Peter Davison as an actor. The, the two of them bounce off each other so well. You think of stories like Frontios mm. or, or Planet of Fire. Um, even some of his earlier ones. There's a really good performance in there. It's just sort of lost in this this mayhem that was the, the, the Davison era of so many companions, so many regulars. And, and you know, Turlo did get locked under the floorboards or locked in a barn or you know, he was always you know, locked up for a, for a period and, and I think wasted. Yeah, I remember the first time around with Turlo, like his, his first three stories where the Black Guardian is controlling him and trying to get him to off the Doctor... I, I was thinking, I, I don't like this guy. Uh, yuck. Uh, I don't like this companion at all. And as time went on, I warmed to him. And by the time of Planet of Fire, and we finally get the backstory, and we finally 
sort of see what's going on and you know he's he's out of the school uniform thank god and you know it's like oh this is actually a really interesting character but oh he's leaving oh you know yeah i I remember feeling that quite distinctly the first time i watched his stories in a row as as a as a younger person i thought he was really interesting by the end and they do something with the character they don't do a lot of which is although there is still that mentor telemachus relationship between the doctor and the companion with the fifth doctor and turlo they feel a lot closer to each other and much more like friends and and turlo does learn a lot from the doctor and the doctor does guide him and teach him and make him a better person the way the doctor does with the companion but they do feel a lot more like equals and and like buddies Mm. and you really don't get to see that relationship between a doctor and a companion quite like that very often at all no, no. I'd, I'd particularly like to see more male companions in Doctor Who. Um, you know, I, I think they can do something very interesting with that. But uh, hmm. Yep, I agree. I have two more for the 80s, Dave. Okay, well, I'll, I've, I'm, I'm done until we get to the new series, so over to you. Okay, this is a musician. He is squished between Peter Howell and Kef McCulloch for doing the theme... Go on, yes, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> it's, it's Dominic Glynn doing the music for season 23. I'm so glad you have this, Dan. I'll let you start, but I'll have more to say. Yeah, look, the the Peter Howell arrangement was such a, a new, fresh uh, theme tune when it came along. It's, it's just amazing. It's still a great theme tune now. And the Kef McCulloch piece for the Sylvester McCoy uh, era, his three seasons, I don't think is as good a theme tune, but... I think it reminds us all of those final three years when things were finally looking up for Doctor Who. And so it's remembered in, in quite a nice way, particularly as, as it had new credits too. They'd got rid of the Starfield. And so Kef McCulloch's piece went with this whole new credits, which looked quite good for the time. Even now looks still pretty good. And in between, you just have Dominic Glynn doing this one season and a short season too, not many episodes. And I think his theme tune was quite interesting quite haunting quite good but he is absolutely in the shadows between Hal and McCulloch yes look I'm really glad you picked this I've always been very very fond of Dominic Glynn's Doctor Who theme I think it just captures something a little bit different and a little bit more mysterious and I think it suffers from being the one that came after Peter Howell mm. because I actually think it's closer to the original version than the Howell theme is but it seems weaker perhaps next to that thumping howl theme but i said when we had our incidental music episode rob how much i love dominic Glynn as an artist doing doctor who music the mysterious planet dragonfire happiness patrol survival four of i think the best musical scores certainly in 80s doctor who if not across the whole of doctor who he's a phenomenally good really good composer and i'm mm. yeah I'm, I'm i'm really glad again you know, he's not Dudley Simpson and he's not Kef McCulloch and he's not Mark Ayers. You know, people get a lot of um, Paddy Kingsland, um, Peter Howell, ones that get a lot of attention. He, he's just very, very good at what he does. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him. Rounding out the 80s, uh, and this is something that really starts in the 70s, but is mostly from the 80s, which is why I'm throwing it into the 80s. It's a writer, Dave, and it's not a TV writer. It's a Target Novels writer. Ooh. Are you intrigued? Yes. Making my list for the second time, because we've already spoken about Harry Sullivan, it's Ian Marta. Oh, yes. 
Now, I think Ian Marta wrote some cracking target novels. Just to remind people, he wrote Ark in Space and Sontaran Experiment, which were stories he'd been in. But he also did Rybos Operation, Enemy of the World, Earthshock, The Dominators, The Invasion, The Reign of Terror, The Rescue, and Harry Sullivan's War. And I think Marta is an, is an author who will really flesh out the stories and write in an almost adult way at least within the confines of what a target book would let you do in terms of adult content but you know when people talk about target novels it's always uncle terence this uncle terence that or they get excited that you know past writers from the tv series came back and novelized one of their stories or whatever i feel although popular in some ways his target novels are sometimes overshadowed and he's a bit in the shadows there very good call i think it's correct to say that ian marta is actually the most prolific target writer other than Terence Dix? It'd be fair to say. It's a lot of novels there. Yeah, it is. I, th- I think he is. And, and you're right, there are very good ones. I distinctly remember Enemy of the World and Ark in Space, particularly as standouts, that really added a, a real tone, mm. a real atmosphere that does put them above a lot of those target novels. You're right, he, he is very good. But yes, he's, he's not Terence Dix. Nor is he John Peel or Ben Aronovich or some of those other ones that came in at the, the latter end where they could do a bit more. He he was doing those bigger, more complicated, darker novels before they were the thing. Absolutely. And, you know, his novels like Reign of Terror and The Rescue came at a time when I was really becoming a mad, keen fan and just buying everything and reading the novels. And it's, it's stuff like that that was getting me into Hartnell before I was watching many Hartnell episodes, you know, reading his Reign of Terror, reading his Rescue and, and so on, which are great books. They are. I totally agree with that pick. So we're now on to the new series, I believe. We are indeed. So I'll start off with a story. Mm-hmm. And that is a story from season two. And it is The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit. Yeah. Now, I think these get really lost in the shadows, partly because they're in a season that has very mixed views amongst fandom and um, was seen as that sort of not quite as good, difficult second album mm-hmm. by, by a lot of fandom. And it's now quite quite an old season. I mean, it's 13 years ago that these stories aired. It's also hidden in the shadows of the bigger two-parters. Most of the two-parters of the Russell T. Davies era are the big season finales or the big introduction of the Cybermen or the reintroduction of the Santarans mm. or Daleks versus Cybermen or something like that <laughs> or, 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 you know, or Stephen Moffat's big two-parter for the season, for the, for the season like um, Empty Child and the Doctor Dancers, which are phenomenally good as well. Yeah. In amongst all that, you just get The Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit. I think probably the best episodes of that season although i do very much love the idiot's lantern personally but i think these are these are better this has got the best i think dynamic between the tenant doctor and rose in and and that's a dynamic i I really struggle with and i really having loved rose in series one struggled with her so much alongside tenant in series two but the dynamic is really good the guest cast is amazing it's visually dark it's emotionally dark it's got Gabriel Wolf doing Gabriel <laughs> Wolf voice. It looks big and epic, and it's it's got a humanity as well to it, a real humanity to it, which I think comes from the author Matthew Jones, who I, I, I've said before his Virgin New Adventure 
um, Bad Therapy is one of my favourite Doctor Who stories of all time. Again, because of the humanity that Matthew Jones brings to it. I think that this is just an overlooked two-parter. And I think it does live in the shadows of the big epic two-parters. And I want to give it some love. I, I think you're very right to say it, it lives in the shadows of, of Series 2 in general. You know, when people think of Series 2, the first thing they'll say is, oh, well, that's the series where the Doctor and Rose are really smug. Yes. And, and that's their first comment. Then they'll say, oh, it's got that awful two-part Cyberman story. Oh, it's got Love and Monsters. Oh, it's got Fear Her. Oh, yuck. And, yeah. and it's often the Impossible Planet and Satan Pit is often the first story I'll pull out and say, yes, but it's got this story. Have you forgotten this story? This yeah. Is, this is absolutely amazing. Uh, so I, I totally get how it can be lost because there are some bigger things going on in, in, the, in, the, in the series that do overshadow it. So great call there. Uh, thank you. And a second pick of my three picks for the new series, Rob, is actually a whole series, and that is series five. Interesting. I think Series 5 deserves a lot more credit than it gets, and it does get lost because it comes off that big, epic Series 4, Russell T. Davies finale, and then you get the specials, and you've had Tenant, you know, that, that, that time when Doctor Who had never been more popular, and everyone on the planet was watching it, and you couldn't go into a toy shop or an ABC shop without David Tennant merchandise everywhere, and there, there was that, you know, and you had Torchwood and Sarah Jane Adventures, and Doctor Who was huge, mm. and... Then later on, you get the Moffat era, which has its own style and its own fans. And, and Series 6, although it's not one I like, totally, like, it's a big deal. It's Moffat saying, this is what I'm doing with Doctor Who. And this is a whole big change, and it's epic in its own way. And stuck in the middle, you just get this really lovely season. The 11th Hour, not my favourite opening, but pretty good. Uh, the Time of Angels two-parter, I think a really lovely two-parter. Amy's Choice, incredibly good story. Mm. Vincent and the Doctor, still my favourite Matt Smith story. The Silurian two-parter, look, it disappoints in that it's not the Silurians that we kind of remember. <laughs> yes. Like, it's, it's kind of retelling the story, but not as well, but it's still a good, solid two-parter. The Lodger by Gareth Roberts, lots of fun. I mean, I, I, and I glossed over it, but Vincent and the Doctor, Richard Curtis wrote for Doctor Who. Yeah. You know, Richard Bloody Curtis. I know. <laughs> um... And, and then you finish with the Pandora opens and the Big Bang, which is kind of really that transition from traditional Who into Moffat Who. I'm not saying it's the best series out there. It's not. I'm not saying it's, you know, top three. It's not a podium finish of Doctor Who series, but I think it's kind of forgotten, but it's just a really solid season. I mean, Amy's Choice, Simon Nye, whose work doing um, Men Behaving Badly, I'm a f huge fan of. Mm. You know, th these writers that suddenly came to write for it, Chris Chibnall at the time was a bit of a big deal. Um, and, you know, Gaddis is back, Gareth Roberts is back. There's a lot to recommend this series. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. I think it does live in the shadows of the bigger, more bombastic seasons. Yeah, I concur with you on this, although I will say, like when you pulled out Davo as uh, an In the Shadows Doctor, I... I struggle to see this as an In the Shadows series because it's my favourite Matt Smith series. Of his three, I think this is far better than the other two. Uh, so it sort of has this elevated position in my mind. Yep. But again, if I step out of my shoes and step into someone else's shoes, your shoes, someone else's shoes, you know, as long as they're a size 12, I'll fit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see exactly what you're saying because, yeah... The other, the other series are more bombastic and they're off to America and they're doing things and there's more money being spent on it and such. But 
I think this is his best series. I think it's fantastic. And the the stories you pulled out, like Amy's Choice and, and like Vincent and the Doctor, are, are fantastic. The Lodger, I think, is a lot of fun. I think there's room for Doctor Who to be silly like that once a once a series or maybe twice a series. Yeah. Uh, you know, Victory of the Daleks is in there as well. That's terrible, but, you know, <laughs> you can't have everything. Yeah, look, The Beast Below doesn't work for me. Uh, there are a couple of weak ones in there, but... Its lows aren't nearly as low as a lot of other New Who seasons have. Not at all. I mean, if, if Victory of the Daleks is the worst you can say about a series, that's actually not too bad. Yeah, yeah, look, based on what has come since then, it's <laughs> it's actually not too bad. What's your final pick for the new series, Rob? My final pick for the new series, Dave, is a companion, and I'm going with Martha. Well, we're finishing on a snap then. Are we really? <laughs> we really are. We haven't planned that at all. We really are. Look, to me, this was so obvious. She's squished between Rose and Donna. What what hope does she have? Yes. I, I, I like Freema Adjaman very much. She can really act. I loved her in Sense8 on Netflix. I've loved her in other shows. The whole vibe of someone being into the Doctor, but the Doctor's not into them, turned that whole companion relationship on its head. Suddenly, we didn't have another romance going on. We had something new. Oh, I have a lot of goodwill towards Martha, but she's just absolutely overshadowed in this war between Rose and Donna. It seems people are like, oh, do you like Rose or do you like Donna? It's like Martha never existed. And it's so sad because she's a really good companion. It really is like that, isn't it, Rob? That that just sense of, well, your, your favourite's got to be Rose or Donna. Like, well, no, my, my favourite companion of the new series up until Pearl Mackey's Bill came along in series 10, mm. was Martha. I just thought she got the balance absolutely right of this desire to explore the universe with the Doctor without wanting to shag the Doctor, at least not so, as overtly as some others. Uh, she wasn't as brash and sort of grating on my senses as Donna was. She wasn't the greatest, most important, special, phenomenal, the whole of time Ben Zaranda, like all of Moffat's companions up until Bill. She was just one of us travelling with the Doctor and doing it really well. And you look at her performance in particularly human nature. Mm. That is as good a performance as I would say any companion gives. Oh, absolutely. And even in that awful two-parter where the Doctor turns into Dobby from Harry Potter and then turns into Christ and flies through the air and all of that stuff. Yeah. Even in that story where she travels the world like the guy in Kung Fu, you know, spreading the word of the Doctor, that's a pretty amazing thing for her to have done. But in the final wrap-up, it's still about the Doctor being amazing and the Doctor saving the day. It's not about the companion suddenly being the most important thing in the world. Could you imagine if that had been Clara? I uh, think it would no, have been all about Clara. Oh, my goodness. Christ, Doctor and Clara in the same episode. It would have, been, would have been too much. But, no, you're absolutely right. Martha carries that season finale. Yes. Oh, without doubt. Without yeah. doubt. Because the Doctor's stuck in a cage, as I say, looking like Dobby from Harry Potter. Yeah, and when you've got John Sims' master to play against carrying that is as, as, as the goody is a really hard thing to do and she does it really well so i'm really glad we finished our list on that moment of consensus rob i one of the first people i put on the list when i started compiling my list was martha yeah it was for me too so <laughs> completely unplanned listeners honestly there you go well i've i've enjoyed flagging some of those i as always look forward to hearing what our listeners have to say what they think we've missed and whether they agree with us yeah, in fact, when we get to some listener email in a moment, we've already had some uh, some feedback on uh, what people think we might be talking about and what they would talk about if they were on the episode. Well, shall we move into those now, Rob? 
I think so, Dave. And I'm going to start with a really quick website comment because this is on a past episode uh, which we entitled What Doctor Who Did Next? Uh, Virgin NAs and MAs. That was our episode where we talked about Doctor Who in print during the wilderness years. And Ian Martin wrote in and said, this was a really interesting listen. I totally share the kitchen's love and passion for the Virgin era, but I don't think there'd be much overlap in our respective top tens. Yeah, that was a really nice comment to read from Ian. I'm I'm glad he shares my love of the Virgin Era. I I will wax lyrical about the Virgin Era at any chance I'm given. But I remember saying at the time we did the episode that it is one of those eras of the show where absolutely people's top tens can be completely different from each other because there was such a wonderful variation in style and tone and direction right across the series so yes somebody could like a whole bunch of stories and someone else equally love a whole other bunch of stories for completely different reasons that really sums up the era for me yeah shall we move on uh yes so we've had another listener email this is from regular contributor mike solko good afternoon my friends if my world clock is accurate this should be reaching you just before the last minute well it did mike well done <laughs> well done it's when the doctor does their best work isn't it I was negligent in my duties mailing in last month. However, I don't know that the Merkin needed an extra kicking. <laughs> this month's topic is an interesting one, as there are so many high-quality areas of Who that are overlooked or don't quite live up to the more popular choices. A few quick thoughts. Season 24 is outshone by Season 25 and Season 26 in the eyes of most fans. As much of these later seasons are amazing, I love the slapdash adventure we get in Season 24. This is the first time in years both the Doctor and his companion are excited about travelling. He's showing up in odd situations and figuring it out as he goes, rather than executing a plan set in motion before the rotor even quit moving. Yeah, interesting call. I, I certainly think that season 24 gets overlooked. I, I would agree with that. I, I think if season 24 had something other than time and the Rani, it would be instantly 50% better liked by people. It does start off with that disadvantage, doesn't it? Yeah. Mike also writes, The missing adventures are often an afterthought in discussions about the wilderness years. Perhaps it's their inability to introduce huge changes for the most part. Maybe it's the fact that folks like me were skipping the doctors they didn't care for along the way. There was a very strong consistency in the range, and I'd venture at least two-thirds are worth reading. What good would the greater who canon be if we didn't have the man in the velvet mask? Again, I'll talk about the Virgin books any chance I get, and that includes the missing <laughs> adventures. Um, I think that they are overshadowed partly because they came second in terms of release to the new adventures. We were already mm. well established before we did them. And, and partly I think Mike is right. They had to be both good novels in their own right, appeal to a modern audience, and fit into the respective Doctor's era. And so it was very hard to please all the folks all of the time when you're doing that. Indeed, and this ties back into me buying the five uh, Colin MAs uh, earlier this month. But Dave, one of those Colin MAs doesn't really tie into Colin's era because he's got a completely different companion, doesn't he? He's got some red-headed guy on the front cover. Uh, yeah, two of them do, yes. There you go. So I guess they still tried to do some, some different stuff along the way. The, the Colin era is one that really does lend itself to that experimentation, yes. Hmm. Uh, Mike's other recommendations... Along the same lines, the PDAs seem to be even more overlooked. Being released in conjunction with a shaky EDA range likely didn't help. The presence of Big Finish further overshadowed them towards the end of the line. Yeah, I'd concur with that. I, I would for the, for the same reasons we just spoke about, yeah. 
You've likely already talked about Ben and Polly, so just consider this me nodding along. Well, we didn't, but again, we very easily could. I think the fact that Ben and Polly both have a large number of key stories that are missing mm. doesn't help. But but again, they're not Jamie and Victoria, and they're not Ian and Barbara, and no, uh, that, that, no. that 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 does overshadow them. No, and and for me, it's like with with Davo and with uh, one of the other examples too, Polly is my favourite female companion of the 60s. So I find it, I struggle to see Polly in that being overshadowed, like, because to me, Polly is wonderful. But again, put on some other people's shoes. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Definitely, I can see that. And I think the other problem they have is they're not clearly a first Doctor companion or a second Doctor companion. They they straddle in a way which is very unusual for companions to, to be almost equal in terms of their representation you know Liz Sladen did a season with Pertwee but she's very much remembered as Tom Baker's companion anyway Mike finishes off I'm sure there's plenty more you've already discussed in terms of stories actors folks behind the scenes etc looking forward to hearing your thoughts thanks Mike Solko thank you so much for that Mike great email yeah thank you Another email here from David Young. He says, Dear Dave and Rob, as part of your unsung heroes of Doctor Who, I'd like to put a shout out for Joa Ando as Francine Jones. I feel she often gets overlooked, having to follow on from the excellent Camille Kaduri as Jackie, and indeed perhaps overshadowed by Jacqueline King as Sylvia Noble, who followed her, but in just a few appearances, she shows real character development, at first very unsure and suspicious of the new man in her daughter's life, uh, that she is willing to listen to external government forces and throw her lot in with them to investigate him. We then see her utter shock at her betrayal by Harold Saxon and her imprisonment upon the Valiant as little more than a slave worker, her eventual brutal treatment leading to her to reappraise the Doctor and her own actions enough that she seems willing to kill in order to gain her revenge as one of the only humans who still realize that the events of these episodes once occurred she then has to deal with those memories and the possible loss again of her daughter her knowing nod of her head at the window to the doctor as martha decides to leave says more than actual words could and i'll just pause there and say yeah i thought that was a really good scene when martha's leaving she's just there at the window quick nod it said a lot without having any words really Yes, very, very much so. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen a few more adventures with Martha on board to see how forgiving and understanding Francine actually was. A Joa gives strong performances in all the episodes she appears in and I think needs a little bit of credit for it. I am currently watching back through all New Who episodes with my daughter Maisie, who was too young to watch them first time around, and I admit that her performance had passed me by as well. But on these viewings, I was really impressed. Worth a shout, I think, and also worth another evaluation. Keep up the excellent work, guys, from David Young. Thank you, David, for that email and taking the time to make a recommendation. And I agree so much with it. We've just praised Martha herself. But, yeah, her, her mother is really good. And, look, I understand why a lot of fans prefer the other companion families in New Who, in, in Russell's era. But as someone who likes his Doctor Who sometimes a little bit drier and, and likes to really believe in these regular or recurring companions and their their families i got i agree i got so much out of it they, these felt like real people that i could understand and worry about mm. more than the others ever did 
Yeah, Francine's an, an interesting one. I guess first impressions count both in real life and when we're watching characters on TV. And she initially comes across as a bit of a, a, a cold fish and she she doesn't really like the Doctor. And I guess as the viewer, we think, oh, you don't like the Doctor, you mustn't be very good then. Um, but as time goes on, she does she does mellow and warm up and, and comes to see the Doctor for what he really is, which is a, a hero who has saved her daughter and saved the planet. But, yeah, compared to, say, a Jackie who's just zany and out there and, and just amusing from the get-go, it is a real contrast, and I can see why people would prefer Jackie. But I think Dave is, is quite right here. You know, I think uh, Francine Jones maybe does deserve some reappraisal as people go back and watch those episodes. I totally agree, Robin, and it's contributions like this that uh, we really enjoy from our listeners who come up with ideas that we hadn't thought of and some really good contributions there from both Mike and David. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Before we go, a little plug. Some listeners may be familiar with the books of fan essays that J.R. Southall puts out from time to time with our other various different um, editors. And one has just come out called One More Lifetime, a You and Who miscellany, which has a series of essays on the Capaldi era and a whole lot of other things that haven't been covered in other volumes. And I've got two essays in this, Rob. You've got two in there, Dave. What have you I've done? I've got two in there. So uh, I got in very early when they called for nominations to write about the Capaldi era, and I've written an essay called The Unseen Hook, which is about World Enough and Time and the Doctor Falls, which, as long-time listeners will know, I really enjoyed, as did you, Rob. Oh, you got a very good couple of stories there. Uh, did I really enjoy that, writing my thoughts and experiences about being a fan watching those. And I've got an essay called At Last a Dragon, which is about a little series called Class. Ah, Class. Bless. <laughs> so a couple of contributions there. And a number of our regular listeners and emailers and, and tweeters to the show have got essays in there as well, as have many other regulars on other Doctor Who podcasts. So uh, if you just Google One More Lifetime, You and Who Miscellany, you'll... Uh, See it there. I got my copy from Amazon, so easy enough to do. Oh, well done you. And just while we're on the uh, the topic of class, if newer listeners don't realise, we did a whole series on class, Dave, on this podcast feed. If you go back, you can see us talk about each and every episode completely seriously. We took it very seriously and, and, and quite actually enjoyed the series compared to most people. So if you've ever dipped into class and wanted to hear some, uh, some non-hateful views on it, uh, we have certainly provided that earlier on our feed. Yes, sadly, class isn't getting a renaissance or a second look at by a lot of fans, but look, we've often said it should, so there we go. Yeah. But that's us for this month, Rob. What are we going to be discussing next month for July? Dave, we've kicked around some topics and we've settled on one that I think, oh gosh, we could have done this at any time in the podcast's life. I'm, I'm shocked that we're, what, four years into the podcast now and we're only just doing it. That topic is Cybermen. I have so much to say about this, and <laughs> some of it good, some of it bad, some of it neither. Yeah. But there's a lot to say about the Cybermen. So let's just dive into the Silver Giants and have that conversation next month. Absolutely. And if you're listening to us right now and you've got something to say about the Cybermen, do write to us, hello at the dwshow.net, or write to us on Facebook or Twitter and let us know your thoughts, and we'll include those on the Cyberman episode. But until then, I hope you've enjoyed Living in the Shadows with us this month. And I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we'll see you next month talking Cybermen. Bye-bye. Goodbye. 
You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.